This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. At the end of March, my dad got sick. It was, you might remember, a moment of chaos. Lockdown had just been announced. Infections were skyrocketing. We were in those early days of the pandemic when basically no one knew anything. At first, he started to feel a bit weird. We had a couple of slightly anxious phone calls, but he played it down at first. I'm sick, he told me. I think I've got it. But he wasn't coughing too much and it felt quite manageable. But then he got a fever and his whole body hurt. He started hallucinating in the night. And the next time that he called, it was terrifying. I could hear the fear in his voice. He described the symptoms like a storm passing through his body. His immune system was using every weapon in its arsenal, coughing, sneezing, snotting, fever, anything and everything to try and fight the virus inside him. But then, quite suddenly, he got better. We had a better phone call, and he had this surge of energy. Then he crashed again, and another week was spent on the couch, clinging on. Then another surge, then back into this deep fatigue. Six months later, I'm extremely lucky to say that my dad survived coronavirus. But that's not the end of the story. He's still sick. He's still fatigued, foggy. He's still searching for the good health that he had up until March as a fit 61-year-old. When I texted him last week to ask him how he's doing, he replied to say, it's like ever-diminishing tremors after an earthquake. And he's not alone by any means. Around one in 10 people have symptoms weeks or even months after they get COVID-19. And it's something that's perplexing doctors and researchers. They're chasing to understand what is going on with so-called long COVID. And they're doing it in real time because it's something that we still don't really know anything about. There's very little help on offer to people still suffering from these strange and chronic symptoms. And so, of course, when people can't get answers, they turn to the internet. And so vast numbers of people are turning to support groups on social media, desperately looking for answers and trading advice on a seemingly never-ending condition that nobody seems to understand. So, of course, we're going to try and understand it. 
I'm Basha Cummings, and in this week's Slow Newscast, I'm talking to my colleague Giles Wattell, or should I say Professor Giles, as we fondly call him in our newsroom. And he's been interviewing long COVID patients and the leading researchers and doctors who are trying to understand this virus's long-term effect on the brain, the heart, and the lungs. Slow News is a podcast made by us here at Tortoise. We're a news publisher, in an app, online, in our daily Sensemaker email, and, as you already know, in podcasts. What's different about us is that we investigate what's driving the news, and we'd love for you to join us. By becoming a member of our newsroom, you'll get access to our journalism, and you can join our open news meetings and help decide what matters in the world and how we should report it. To get access to all of Tortoise, all you have to do is download our app and take the free trial. Go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash pod trial and help make the news. Hello, Giles. Hi, Basha. Thank goodness your dad's okay as far as you know. Yes, thank you. Um, and as you said, he's not alone. There are tens, hundreds of thousands of people living with long COVID and the mysteries of long COVID are how long and what causes it. Mm. And because they're unsolved, all these people uh, are not only still ill, but they don't know why and they don't know how long it'll be until they're properly well again, or indeed, if they ever will be. So what's it like to live through this? Let's first go back six months to the Netherlands, where we meet Dr. Margot Gage Whitfleet. She's been on holiday with her family and she's just getting ready to return to the US. So I'm getting ready to check in on my flight and so we don't know how long this is going to be going on for. Yeah, I think it's too congested to stay here. It's going to be widespread here in Europe. Yeah, I think we got to get out of here as soon as possible. Margot is a social epidemiologist from Austin, Texas. When she sees the coronavirus news coverage begin to intensify, she starts recording a video diary for posterity. So we need to get our butts on that plane before it's too late. It's just like the movies. So we came back on the 2nd of March. Uh, we arrived back in, to the U.S. There's nobody ask her here. There we go. Here we go. Oh, look at all of these gloves and face masks that they have. And roughly 10 days later, uh, I started experiencing my first symptoms. I've had chest pain now for a few days, uh, but last night my symptoms got worse. I have sore throat, but the sore throat is like at the bottom of my throat, like hard to swallow. Well, we need to figure out the best thing to do for your sore throat, and I can certainly call medication that would help to make your throat feel better. Most importantly, your temperature has been within the range of normal limits. Correct. All right. My children, both my children also got sick, and my husband also. We all were sick at the same time. Uh, it's just that I was the only person who just kept getting sicker. Nights seem to be the hardest. I don't know why. Maybe because it's that I'm 
more tired last night and tonight I almost uh, passed out hurt to talk it started with uh, body aches and a sore throat and then it rapidly progressed to severe shortness of breath and chest pain really bad chest pain that landed me into the hospital. I really hope that we all make it through this. Today we updated our will. It's the worst thing in the world to be thinking about where you need to place your children in the event that something happens to you. It felt like an elephant was sitting on my chest uh, so I would imagine perhaps that's what it feels like when you're having a heart attack. I was feeling like a fish out of water. Like if you would imagine like a wounded animal who's really having problems with catching their breath. I had gotten chills and I, and I, I was like having uncontrollable shaking of the body. Uh, and, and it was really painful. Uh, I've had two children naturally. And I would say that the pain that I was experiencing at that time was worse than childbirth. And did they test you then? Yes. When I went to the hospital, I was one of the first in the state of Texas to get a COVID test is what I was told. Uh, The test that I received was non-FDA approved. And so that's when my problems began because the test came back negative. I knew something was wrong. I'm a health professional and I know my body and I know that my, I found it just too much of a coincidence that all of these things were suddenly happening to me, you know, when we were having COVID, it was just too much. Um, so I thought it was a false negative and I'm, because I'm an epidemiologist, you know, that, that talking, speaking in those terms makes sense to me. It's said in the instructions a negative test doesn't actually mean the person doesn't have COVID. But the problems was that my doctors were very focused on the outcome of the test and didn't look at all the other symptoms that I was having. Um, But then when I had my seizure, the first one, that's when I knew, okay, that, you know, this, this is COVID. Tell us about the seizure. How many, uh, days or weeks after your return to the States, did that happen? Uh, That happened. So I returned in in March and by the end of April, I believe I had my first seizure. It was horrible. Uh, It felt, you know, shaking, the feeling of your swallowing your tongue. Um, I was out of it. A lot of it I don't remember. Uh, A lot of it was told to me. Um, I had, uh, I had static ringing in my ears. Um, this was when it got really scary because now I was, I was unresponsive. Um, and so at this point, when I went back to the emergency room, the ER doctor, she, she looked at everything and she diagnosed me with, with COVID. That, that was the first doctor who said it. And for listeners, uh, we should probably explain that you're relatively young and you're in good physical shape, right? That's correct. I'm 38 years old. I'm super healthy. I'm super fit. And I've never broken a bone. Doctors have described me as being medically boring. <laughs> Seriously, until this happened. 
Days after Margot begins to feel ill, thousands of miles away in London, the same thing happens to Monique Jackson. It began with feeling tired and then I had a headache across the front of my brow, which I, I, I don't usually have. Um, and I looked a bit pale and I felt a pinch in the centre of my chest. So that was an indication that things weren't quite right. And what when I decided on Monday to start self-isolating, it sort of progressed into sweating, shivering, loss of appetite, and then felt sort of a bit feverish, I suppose. Did you have that dry, persistent cough? No, I had a dryness um, that I felt the need to clear with a cough, but that wasn't, it wasn't a persistent cough. I never had a cough. And the following week, midway, I thought I was actually on the mend. And then the breathing change took place in the evening. I remember it was still a bit chilly, so the central heating was on. And I remember lying in my bed trying to rest. And then I just had this feeling of, I can't catch my breath. And I sort of stood up and had this instinct to crank the window open and throw my head outside to get cool air. And I was just taking deep breaths to get the air. And I just, um, the tightness in my chest, it felt like a belt across my chest, really. I would describe it as like trying to breathe through a plastic bag with some small holes in it. So an ambulance came. The paramedics ran some tests on Monique. All her numbers came back fine but she didn't feel better. Her symptoms didn't go away. In fact, they got worse. And a week later, she had to go to the accident and emergency department at her local hospital. And once she got there, she was told the public weren't being tested for COVID and was sent home. In fact, she couldn't get a test until nine and a half weeks into her illness, which is when community testing had opened up again in the UK. But just like for Margot, her test came back negative. Weeks went by, months went by, and both of them stayed ill. And as they stayed ill, their list of symptoms just kept getting longer. I had blisters on my toes. A rash on the top of my foot. I've had a sore throat now going on for six months. I still have it. I felt like I'd been punched in the ribs. I also have kidney issues. You know that film Pulp Fiction where Uma Thurman has the syringe going of adrenaline? <laughs> You're resting and then bam, there's that adrenaline and my heartbeat would just go off. I had something like kind of like an acid reflux. It always felt weird like when I was trying to swallow and it was hard to swallow also. And I remember being up from 2 a.m. through till sunrise and I could just feel the acid just burn. A blind spot in my, in my right eye. Bladder and kidney pain. A lot of pain just all over in the body. Dry mouth, dry eyes. Sometimes it feels that I'm walking on rocks. Tinnitus. Memory issues. I remember looking at emails and it was like looking at another language. It's basically your brain is not moving fast enough. The list goes on and on. We counted between 20 and 30 for each of them, many of them identical. It is what it is. I mean, it, it's humbled me and it's made me realise that it was an illusion before the idea that I had control over my body. So, Giles, with Monique and Margot's symptoms, do they look similar to the ones that other people are experiencing? They do. Um, the cohort is huge and the similarities between those in it are, are striking. The symptoms that 
Many, many people report feeling include fatigue, brain fog, which we can describe as an inability to think straight, having trouble with short-term memory. Then heart palpitations, shortness of breath, aching muscles. Some of these uh, last for months, but what's really interesting is that some just pop up suddenly and then disappear again just as quickly, and we don't know why. And then of more concern perhaps than anything is that there are lingering problems with the brain and the heart and the liver and the kidneys. But obviously, particularly with the brain and the heart, there's deep concern about whether, as a result of COVID, we're going to have large new cohorts of people with permanent Mm. or long-term coronary or cognitive damage. And I suppose that's the thing, isn't it, that we don't capture when we focus only on death rates. And that's something that I've been thinking about a lot as we seem to go into the second wave is that we've been obsessing and rightly over the number of people dying but we're not accounting for the people and and there are many of them who are going to be ill for a long time particularly given that we don't know yet what that permanent impact might be on their body right and this is a plea that you hear from a lot of people suffering from long covid is we understand that the primary concern is over people dying Mm. from COVID, but what about those of us who are Mm. living with it? And that experience that Monique and Margot had with testing, struggling to get a test, does that seem like a common one among long haulers? Uh, Yes. Whether in this country or other countries, many of those who we spoke to either couldn't get a test or when they did get a test, uh, tested negative, both for the virus itself and in some cases, if they had an antibody test as well, that came back negative too. Even though that they were convinced that they had had it? Even though they were convinced, mm. and in some cases, even though their doctors were already convinced, just looking at their symptoms, that wow. they had it. Um, in the end, there's a big difference between Monique and Margot, and that is a diagnosis. Monique never got one, but Margot in the States did get a formal diagnosis on the basis of her symptoms from her doctors. But in any case, they've both been sick with these symptoms for months and it is a pretty confusing situation Mm. to be in. So what actually is long COVID? We've talked about these symptoms, but why are some people who have coronavirus developing this sort of long list and long running list of symptoms and others aren't? And do we know how long they might last? So let me introduce here Dr David Arnold. I think the penny really dropped uh, when we started calling back our patients and started seeing also the patient reports, both in the social media and mainstream media, of patients having symptoms going on for an exceptionally long period of time. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information, 
information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. After they'd initially had the virus. He's a respiratory doctor and a researcher at Southmead Hospital in Bristol. And he started studying COVID as soon as it arrived in the UK. So you'd expect normally, mainly people would be getting shortness of breath, chest pain, but people were experiencing a huge number of other symptoms as well. And and that's really when uh, we realised, gosh, we really need to study this in more detail. Now, all the patients in David's study were recruited after hospital stays, but many long haulers have been sick entirely at home and may not find Dr. Reynolds' uh, research all that comforting, but they will find the results sound pretty similar. We asked survivors to re-attend clinic at 12 weeks, so three months later, and to do a systematic follow-up of them. We found that in those patients, three quarters of them still had ongoing symptoms of shortness of breath, muscle aches and fatigue, as well as many, many others. And um, we found that even patients who perhaps had fairly mild COVID, even that's possibly a pejorative term, even those patients, 60% of them were still having ongoing symptoms 12 weeks later. And that is quite a surprising finding. Did you have some patients presenting with a really very wide array of symptoms, literally from head to toe, COVID toe, brain fog and everything in between? Yeah, absolutely. So... One of the really amazing things about this virus is the fact that it causes such a, a multi-system disease. And that's probably because the ACE2 receptor, so the receptor which the virus binds to, is found everywhere in the body. So there's sometimes absolutely no rhyme or reason as to, as to what symptoms a person is going to get. What evidence have you seen in, in the two studies that you've been involved with that there may be a sort of cohort within a cohort that could, because we don't know yet, I presume, suffer long-term damage to the heart or the brain as a result of COVID? So the research is is very, very early stage, and I will say that. So every single um, paper I reference, there's probably only one piece of evidence uh, to back up each, and that's always a slightly dangerous area to be in. But there was a study published in Germany 
uh, excellently performed study where they performed cardiac MRIs on patients who'd had coronavirus, not just severe either, um, some fairly mild, and found that there was ongoing myocardial so that the, the heart muscle was still inflamed several weeks down the line. And that's really, really important. What, what can that mean long term for a patient? Well, who knows? Who knows? It could explain why some people have still got ongoing symptoms. Could it be that actually this is a, a perfectly normal part of the recovery process from a virus and we've just never investigated it that thoroughly before in terms of patients who are recovering from flu or pneumonia? I'm afraid I just don't know. Every piece of research is very, very early stage. At the moment, we're at the, we're at the stage of just describing these groups as opposed to explaining exactly why it's happened, I'm afraid. Right. And uh, are we in the same position with the brain? Possibly even further back, yeah. Right. Uh, the brain is probably harder to study. Look, I take your point that long COVID necessarily has a long way to run and we're only six months into this, so there's a lot that we don't know. But what do we know about long COVID? What we know is that a lot of patients, even if they had not particularly severe coronavirus at the very start, a lot of people are experiencing ongoing symptoms. And uh, even though they're highly variable, they're, the predominant things are shortness of breath, fatigue, muscle aches and, and chest pain. That's what we know so far. The important areas of future research, I think, would be to look at their immune profile. So is their immune system actually going back to normal, as you would expect after it's fought off a viral illness? Or has it, is it continuing uh, to be active? Because if it's continuing to be active, that might explain why patients have ongoing symptoms. Do you see what I'm saying? Well, um, that's a bit counterintuitive. Can you, why would that be? Uh, because we think, lay people think of the immune system as solving problems, not creating them. Why might that be? So there are three main hypotheses, if this is to be explained by our own immune systems, maybe overreacting. Firstly, that the, the virus hasn't gone away that it's found a reservoir somewhere in the body that it's hiding away in. Now, that wouldn't be typical for a coronavirus, and you might see it more commonly with like a herpes virus that might cause you shingles later on in life. But if it is a reservoir somewhere, then it, it could well be within the gut, for example, and your body is continuously reacting to it. It may not be that the virus is there as a whole, but maybe parts of the virus apparatus are still present. So parts of its protein structure might still be present in your bloodstream, and so your, your immune system feels like it needs to keep reacting to it. And then finally, and a hypothesis that a lot of the immunologists feel has some legs, is that the virus has set up almost an autoimmune condition in your body. So even though the virus is no longer there, your body is still continuing to overreact to it. Right, right. I mean, there's so many, so many questions we've started to get some answers about the acute phase of coronavirus and treatments of the acute phase. I think long COVID is going to take a significant period of time to work out exactly what's going on and potential therapies for it. So Giles, the more I hear you talk, the more this sounds like a detective story that that there are people and patients sort of looking for clues and symptoms, trying to chase down the bad guy to understand his MO. How much can we say that we know about long COVID, scientifically, medically speaking? Well, this is really interesting because the first response from all the doctors and medical professionals we spoke to was, 
uh, we know almost nothing. It's too soon to be to be certain. Though there are theories, but as Dr. Arnold said, right now there isn't even a formal long COVID diagnosis that doctors can give to patients. Many researchers are hoping that that will change, and the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, has recently published a, a practical guide for GPs in this country um, to advise them on on how to treat patients presenting with what looks like long COVID. So we may be getting closer to a formal diagnosis, or or at least a, an accepted set of therapies that GPs can recommend for these patients. There are also some big studies in the world, and particularly in this country, in the UK, the post-hospitalisation COVID-19 study, FOSP-COVID, not very catchy uh, (laughs) for short, is actually the biggest of its kind in the world. They're recruiting 10,000 patients to study with the aim of coming up with that formal formal, uh, Mm. diagnosis and eventually a sort of accepted treatment regimen. One thing you haven't mentioned yet, Giles, is something that seems to be getting talked about a lot online, is the similarities between long COVID and something called myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is better known as chronic fatigue syndrome. Is that something that's been formally looked into as far as you know? And is there a possibility that those two conditions are actually linked? It's certainly being talked about a lot on the Facebook groups and long COVID communities and by doctors looking into it. And actually, the big study that I just mentioned, the FOSP-COVID study in the UK, is investigating potential clinical links between long COVID and ME. Uh, ME is thought to be triggered by a viral infection. And let's recall the symptoms are very similar. Uh, Persistent extreme fatigue, muscle and joint pain, continuous Mm. sore throat, and brain fog and heart palpitations, these very concerning symptoms. The big studies are only just beginning. They need time to collect their data. Um, But it does leave open the really urgent question for people who are living with long COVID, what can be done for them now, you know, while the research is all happening. And and there is an answer. Uh, And in a word, it's rehab. It's happening perhaps as an interim solution, but clinics are popping up, particularly in the States, where doctors who specialise in rehab across the spectrum of uh, sicknesses are saying, we can help. So one thing that I love about rehab is, well, first, the history of our field, at least in the United States, was that it came out of the polio pandemic. And, you know, realising that at that time, patients had new disabilities that had to be addressed and therefore this field of physical medicine and rehabilitation came to be. And with COVID, the same thing. I'm seeing patients having differing type of disabilities or lifestyle changes. This is Dr. Monica Verduzco Gutierrez, who set up the new coronavirus recovery clinic at the University Hospital in San Antonio in Texas. It only opened last month, but they've already got a large group of COVID patients uh, in practical rehab while suffering from long COVID. And to summarise Dr. Verduzco Gutierrez's approach, it is basically to borrow existing therapies from other conditions. It's like uh, building a plane while you're still on the plane. And one thing about rehab, I tell people that 
These are conditions that people have had in other disease states, so I know how to treat them. I may not know what the outcome long term is going to be or how you know, COVID affects it because we don't have all that research yet since it's still active. But I do know how to treat a patient who has a pain syndrome. I do know how to treat a patient with headaches. We know when a patient needs cardiac rehab or when a patient needs pulmonary rehab. And we do know how to treat patients who have memory or executive dysfunctions, which is cognitive changes, because we've taken care of patients who have strokes or who have brain injuries. And so I feel that there's a lot to offer patients. I try to at least offer hope. And the way it works is that if you're lucky enough to show up at that particular clinic, you may find yourself being treated not by one doctor, not just by her, but by five or six with different specialisms. So you will have your heart palpitations treated, well, analysed, and then and then a, a regimen recommended by a coronary specialist. Mm-hmm. You will have your lungs looked at by a respiratory specialist. You will have other specialists look at other symptoms, including cognitive ones. So this isn't, to be clear, this isn't a cure? It's not a cure. It is a bunch of treatments. And they are trying to acquire a body of knowledge to pass on to colleagues. But I should say that one of the biggest worries, and you hear this again and again talking to patients and to doctors, is mental health. And and when you think about the terrifying sounding physical impacts mm. of COVID, including heart damage, it's easy to forget that the very fact of, of enduring a bout of COVID is a trauma, mm. and especially so for people who face most of their illness alone. You're at home, you're quarantined yourself, you're anxious, you're worried about, am I going to get worse? Am I going to get suddenly very ill and be at home by myself? Is there going to be enough resources for me if I get sicker? In my clinic, we do screen patients for depression, for anxiety, for post-traumatic stress, and the numbers are actually quite high just from you know initial analysis that these patients with COVID and long haulers have PTSD just because of what they went through being ill. And so it's something that I think has to be addressed. And it's something that we do try to make sure that they can see a counselor or behavioral health therapist or sometimes get on appropriate medications to help with those symptoms and get them sleeping again, get them. There's also an app that I've been recommending called COVID Coach that has some techniques to help for mindfulness and breathing exercises and some meditation just to help people feel a little more control of the situation again. What do you hope happens going forward for people in your position in the research community? What, looking back, would have made it uh, easier or at least less less bewildering for you? I think what I'd love is a continued investment in the people working on the front line, uh, emergency services, including the mental health services, have just been so important. I think having access to mental health services is really great with coming up with coping strategies and techniques of just changing lifestyle from being so active to to not. 
Also, I'd love to see research-wise treatment for people with long-tail COVID alongside looking for a vaccine. I think that would be great because it's all very well focusing on the vaccine, but there are a lot of people who are ill. And I think that treatment does need to be looked at. I hope to see more research on long COVID about neurological uh, issues that we experience. And I hope that this helps shed more light on ME patients because they have been here for forever. And a lot of us either didn't know that they existed or, you know, they were just being completely ignored and research is totally underfunded uh, for this group of people. I myself uh, will be starting a research project with my neurologist and looking at long haulers. And I also hope that more stories of the low-income people, you know, people that are ignored in the system, because they have a whole particular uh, issue that, you know, somebody like me doesn't have. Because a lot of them are the essential workers, and they still have to go back to work in order to put food on their families' tables. So I'm very interested in wondering how they're able to navigate this, uh, if at all. And we're not really hearing stories about that. Margot, there was one thing I didn't ask, which is how are you feeling right now? It's like at this very moment? Yeah. Like right, yeah, okay, tired. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, that's probably partly our fault, yeah? Uh, yeah, but yeah. it's okay. But All no, right. I'm feeling, uh, right now I'm feeling tired and um, I have a bit of a headache. It's, uh, but but I, I knew that going in, so don't feel bad about it at all. And I will I will be just fine. This this is my life now, so it's okay. So it's hard to come to a conclusion after hearing Monique and Margot and the doctors and researchers leading on long COVID, because there isn't one. It's ongoing, and we still don't know very much about what this is doing to the body. My dad. Well, he's trying to swim in the sea a lot. He's taking it easy. He feels a lot better, but there's a long road to go. But if you're living with long COVID right now, there's loads of resources and communities offering help online. There's Long COVID SOS, which is a Facebook group offering support. That's also campaigning for more action in the UK. Monique, who we've heard from in this podcast, has a wonderful Instagram comic about her experiences of long COVID. And for something slightly more medically driven, there's the COVID Coach app that Dr. Guterres recommends to help long haulers manage their mental health. Thanks for listening today. As ever, we're publishing a load of stuff in our app on the heart, the lungs, and what long COVID really means for patients. All you have to do is go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash pod trial for a 30-day free trial. Thanks. See you next week. Hello, I'm John Curtis. And I'm Rachel Wolf. This week on Trendy, the monarchy. A year after the coronation, and as King Charles returns to work, what do we think of it? And how has that changed over time? To listen to the episode, search for Trendy on Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed to make sure you don't miss an episode.